Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Hello and welcome to another episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, by myself once again after last episode's Wonder Woman anniversary special with my guest, Diablo Frank. We got some nice feedback from that discussion, and if you're on your best behavior, I'll address that as well as the feedback from my Boston Comic-Con episode back in August. Speaking of the month of August... That was a while ago, and the reason I bring it up is because that's when this episode was supposed to come out. After I finished Zatanna's search with my review of Justice League of America 51 on episode 11, which followed the wrap-up of Black Canary's DCU series the episode before, I promised the next episode would tackle the origin of Zatanna that was included with the Zatanna Search trade paperback. Well, spoiler alert, I'm fairly unreliable when it comes to keeping promises like that, And I know I've been fairly inconsistent with my schedule for this show lately. The epic conclusion of my Secret Origins podcast ate up damn near all of my podcasting time for the last couple of months. Now that Secret Origins is over, I would like to be able to tell you that I'll have more time to commit to Power of Fishnets. But I really shouldn't make that promise either. At the end of this episode, I will tell you more about the schedule for this podcast going forward. And, you know, we'll just see how close I stick to that agenda. But forget about the future of this show for now. That's putting the cart before the, um, the thing that drags the cart. What do you call those? Children. Anyway, the subject for this long-delayed episode of Power of Fishnets is the secret origins of Zatanna and Black Canary. If you listen to the Secret Origins podcast, you heard me cover Zatanna's origin with Professor Allen and Emily Middleton back on episode 27, and Black Canary's story with Rob Kelly on episode 50. What am I, double dipping here? No, those are not the stories I'm here to talk about. I'm talking about the original origins of these two fine female heroes. When I started Power of Fishnets, when I decided to pair Black Canary and Zatanna together in one podcast, I did it mainly for the novelty, as I have said before. They both looked good in Fishnets. Really good. Other commonalities I knew they shared? They're both kick-ass ladies. They're both members of the Justice League of America. They're both legacy heroes. They're both natural brunettes. Typically colored black, as comics tend to do with hairstyles. What I didn't know at the time was that both of them had their first official origin stories published decades after they were created, and both origins were written by Jerry Conway, one of my favorite comic book writers, and edited by E. Nelson Bridwell, a legend at DC. And both origins appeared in books called Secret Origins, but not the 1980s series that I covered on the other podcast, not even the 1970s series that preceded it. Both of these secret origins were special comics, part of special series, in fact. Black Canary's origin, written by Conway and drawn by Mike Vosberg, appeared in DC Special Series Issue 10, published in 1978. This iteration of DC Special Series was kind of a random anthology series where some issues would reprint classic horror stories from Ghosts or Unexpected, or whole issues like Swamp Thing and The Brave and the Bold. 
Tossed in, however, were the occasional news story like a Sergeant Rock adventure, or the origins of Dr. Fate, Light Ray, and Black Canary. Another series that DC published around this time that matched the style, if not the format, of DC Special was their Blue Ribbon Digest series. The digests were 100-page collections printed at a reduced size, about the length and width of a birthday card. These digests were almost, almost entirely composed of reprints, and they took on theme issues like an All Legion of Superheroes digest, All Green Lantern digest, All House of Mystery... And there were a lot of Secret Origins digests. Secret Origins of Good Guys, Secret Origins of Bad Guys. They loved to reprint the classic first adventures of the world's greatest superheroes. DC Blue Ribbon Digest issue 5 was one of these Secret Origins of the Superheroes issues. Published in 1980, the book reprinted the established origins of the Justice League of America, Hal Jordan, Donna Troy, Deadman, and Etrigan the Demon. But before any of those, the first story in the issue was a 10-page original scripted by Jerry Conway with art by Romeo Tengal and Vince Coletta called The Secret Spell that told for the first time, really, the origins of Zatara the Magician and his daughter, Zatanna. The cover for that digest featured the father-daughter combo on either side of a giant top hat, out of which flies the legendary superheroes whose stories were told in the issue. This is the first story I'm going to review when we return from a promotional break. But before that, I want to reiterate to my listeners that this episode was supposed to come out back in August. If you're thinking, I finished the Secret Origins podcast, and now I'm just desperately trying to recapture that feeling that I needed another Secret Origins fix or I'd go crazy... Well, I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just saying that these stories were supposed to have been covered months ago. Anyway, I'm going to play a promo now, and then I'll be back with the secret origin of Zatara and Zatanna. Don't go away. Hey there! My name's Nathaniel, and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new podcast. What are you doing? Oh, hey, Liz. I'm just recording the, the podcast promo. You're recording the promo for the Punch Like a Girl podcast? Yeah. You. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the hosts. I have more podcast experience. What? You're going to sit there and mansplain to people about a podcast focusing on graphic novels and trade collections with female protagonists? Um, oh. Yeah. Can I at least tell them how it's available on iTunes and Stitcher and at punchlikeagirlpod.wordpress.com? No. Shoot. All right, well, hang on. I'll delete this. We'll try again. That's not delete. That's the button for publish.
Secret Spell is written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Romeo Tengal, inked by Vince Coletta, edited by Milt Snappen, colored by Gene D'Angelo, and edited by E. Nelson Britwell. On a dark and gloomy night, Zatanna Zatara drives up a long, winding path toward the stately and mysterious Shadow Crest Mansion. She parks in front of the grand old manor and opens the front door, calling out to her father, for Shadowcrest is the home of Giovanni Zatara, the magician. But Zatara does not respond to Zatanna's calls. Indeed, Zatanna finds no trace of her father in the house. Instead, she finds his library wrecked, his private spellbooks and magic papers scattered as though tossed by the gale-force winds of a storm. Of course, there is no real wind in the room, and yet one of the books flutters against Zatanna's leg, its pages turning as if it wanted Zatanna to notice it, she thinks. She picks up the book. It's her father's diary. She flips to the end and reads the last entry, dated March 13th. The damage is done, and cannot be undone, Zatara wrote. Thus, I must flee my home, and pray Zatanna does not find me. The cryptic entry only fills Zatanna with more questions. Why would he hide from his own daughter, and what happened here to leave this library in such a state? The final diary entry provides no obvious answers, so Zatanna determines to read her father's book from the beginning to see if any clues point to his whereabouts. Zatara's mother gave him the diary for his 15th birthday, but his favorite gift was the box of magician's illusions given to him by his grandfather, Luigi. Young Zatara spent years practicing his illusions, until he'd mastered every one of his grandfather's tricks. But at age 19, Zatara performed his very first magic act. Two lackluster results. The crowd, thoroughly unimpressed by his act, booed Zatara offstage. His problem wasn't technique, it was style. He bought a ton of magic books, including one reproduction of the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, written entirely backwards. Zatara recalls that his grandfather used to say they were descended from da Vinci, and giving credence to Luigi's claims is the ease with which Zatara is able to read and recite da Vinci's backwards notes. When Zatara translates da Vinci's words into English and recites the notes backwards, an extraordinary, magical thing occurs. He says, And with those words, the arm of a mannequin in Zatara's dressing room begins to rotate 180 degrees. Zatara realizes the mannequin responded to his magic spell, and he orders it to stop, to be still, but nothing happens. The mannequin does not respond again, until Zatara figures out the code, that the spell to stop, like the original command, must be spoken backwards. Nikinam pots, he says, as the mannequin stops. Still trying to comprehend this new power, Zatara went about his regularly scheduled performance. He had read enough of the other books to know how to spice up his act with style, and a professional persona that captivated the audience. This crowd was definitely into his act, and it threatened to be a success when one of the stagehands accidentally lit the velvet curtain on fire with his cigar. As the fire raged, threatening to torch the theater, Zatara acted instinctively, shouting, Irith Nrut, and the fire turned. With a backwards-spoken spell, he commanded the fire to spread no further. Then he magically compelled three buckets of sand to float over to the fire and douse it, smothering the flames. The audience, convinced the firefighting trick was part of the magic act, howled with delight and applauded the performance. Zatara had his first hit performance, but more than that, he discovered that he could tap into real magic, and his life would never be the same. 
Scanning the rest of the diary, Zatanna reads how her father continued to develop his magic so that he could fight crime while touring as Zatara the Magician. Before this night, Zatanna never knew her father had this incredible ability, and thus never knew the power lay within her as well. On a hunch, she speaks, Erythgil Sihitrae, and a sudden fire lights the hearth. Yes, Zatanna too has the power to cast magic spells by speaking the incantations backwards, and she resolves then to use this power to help find her father. Of course, by now we know her quest will not be easy or brief. It will take her across the world and to distant dimensions, but it will also bring her in contact with some of the world's greatest heroes. And eventually, with the help of the Justice League of America, Zatanna and her father will be reunited. And that is the end of the origins of Zatara and Zatanna. I wanted to cover the story now because it was the last chapter included in the Zatanna search trade paperback, and now I can put that book away. It is a slight, probably imperceptible disruption to the format of this show, however. The Zatanna-centric episodes of Power of Fishnets were always meant to follow the index format, that is, taken chronologically based on publication order. The last part of her search I covered, Justice League 51, was from 1967, and here I am covering a story from 1980. However, as is noted within the story itself, the secret spell is not set contemporaneously with Zatanna's status in 1980. The story is actually a prequel to her first appearance in Hawkman issue 4 from 1964. There would be no need to cover this story between Justice League of America 182 and The Brave and the Bold 169, since she's hardly the same woman. She doesn't even have the same costume in those issues. Beyond that, this story is the perfect capstone to Zatanna's search. Thematically, it ties up Zatanna's quest to find her father, as well as her journey from neophyte stage magician, barely capable of managing her own powers, to a formidable sorcerer able to stand beside members of the Justice League of America. You also wouldn't want to cover the story before her search begins, since the last page gives away the ending. So, yes, I'm happy to deviate from the indexing format in this case to review Zatanna's origin at this time. It works here. As for the story itself, well, as you could tell, it's really more of Zatara's origin story. We see him getting his first magic set, see him mastering his craft, see him learning true magic for the first time, and using it to save lives. We get an entire life and an arc from Zatara. With Zatanna, not so much. She sits in a chair and reads for eight pages, and then says, oh, I must have that power too, and she uses magic. It's not the most visually or mentally creative exploration of her character, but I think Conway was slightly hampered by how the character was depicted in her first six appearances, as starting off pretty inexperienced and unsure of herself. There's nothing objectionable about the story, though it certainly could have been more dramatic and action-packed. I mean, these are superhero comics, after all. But it's fitting enough for the character and the way her journey will play out over the next ten years or so in comics. As for the art, I found it very interesting. This did not look like a story published in 1980 to me. I think Romeo Tengal deliberately made the story look like it came out of the Silver Age. The style, the line work, I think it looks like something Murphy Anderson or Mike Sikowski would have drawn in the 1960s. Unusual choice. Again, they could have gone bigger or more dramatic, but this fits for the character as she existed at that time. I kind of get the feeling somebody at DC, and probably it was E. Nelson Bridwell, was looking over all of the origin stories and realized, you know, we never actually showed how and when Zatanna learned magic. So he gave Conway the ten pages to do this story, and Jerry Conway had been writing her adventures in Justice League for years up to this point. 
Anyway, that was the first secret origin of Zatanna and Zatara. We're going to take another promo break now, but I'll be back in a minute with the secret origin of Black Canary. Stick around. Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. You, my wonderful listeners, are getting a bonus second story in this episode. But in the spirit of those DC specials and Blue Ribbon Digests, This one is going to be a reprint. I mean, a repeat. See, I already talked about Black Canary's origin way back on the very first episode of Flowers and Fishnets, the precursor to this podcast. So rather than redo my synopsis and review, I'm just going to drop in a chunk of that old episode right here and save myself a lot of time and work. The episode of Flowers and Fishnets was released on March 1st, 2015, which means I recorded it in late February, almost two years ago. So if the sound quality is worse, consider that it's an older recording, and also like only the 10th podcast I ever recorded. Here you go. Canary's origin was first told in the 10th issue of DC's special series, which hit newsstands on January 30th, 1978, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. While technically numbered, DC's special series was more a loose collection of one-shots and reprints, so the cover to issue 10 doesn't say special anywhere on it. Instead, the title appears to be Secret Origins of Superheroes. The cover, by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, Wow, it's the first time I've ever actually said that out loud. It just rolls right off the tongue. Anyway, the cover features a trio of DC heroes with captions boasting, Revealed at last, the untold mysteries of Dr. Fate, the strange genesis of Light Ray, and the training of Black Canary. The untold origin of Black Canary is chronicled in The Canary is a Bird of Prey. It was written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Mike Vosberg, inked by Terry Austin, lettered by Shelley Lefferman, colored by Mario Sen, and edited by E. Nelson Bridwell. 
The story opens in present time with a mobster named Rico climbing out of his window in a desperate attempt to escape capture by Green Arrow. In the alley, however, Rico is confronted by Black Canary, who disarms him and Judo flips him into a pile of trash. Green Arrow catches up to them and, without much of a natural segue, pointedly asks his girlfriend if she ever regrets not living what most people consider a normal woman's life. It's obvious to the reader what Canary's answer is, since she barely understands the context of the question. But for Ollie's sake, and ours, she gives the matter some consideration. To understand why Dinah dresses up and fights crime on a nightly basis, we need to understand the road she took to get here. The story flashes back to Dinah's past, when she was a girl, roughly ten years old. We're in the Gotham city of Earth-2, and for ease of understanding, Earth-2 is a parallel universe almost identical to our own, except stories set in Earth-2 are perpetually set in the era immediately surrounding World War II. I think that's pretty easy to grasp, but the editors at DC circa 1985 didn't think so. Anyway, young Dinah is at home with her father, Lieutenant Richard Drake of the Gotham Police Department. Richard's father-daughter time is spent coaching Dinah on boxing, gymnastics, and physical conditioning. He's turning her into a fighter, or at the very least, a woman who can defend herself. But he panics when it looks like Dinah injures herself working out. As Richard comforts Dinah, calling her his little bird, he glances across the room to a photo of his recently deceased wife. Now, it's clear that the lack of a maternal influence had a profound effect on Dinah Drake. Richard simply didn't know how to raise a daughter in the traditional mold, so he brought her up more like a son that he could relate to. And Dinah doesn't resent or reject this kind of parental approach. Maybe it's because her father is all she has now, too, but she desperately wants his love and approval, so she dives right into the physical training he puts her through. When she gets hurt and Richard realizes that he's pushed her too hard, it's Dinah that refuses to back down. And so, over the years, she continues to hone her body into a lean fighting machine, while sharpening her mind and spirit by studying law and reading stories about vigilantes. Richard brought Dinah on ride-alongs so she could see police work in action, and she eventually graduated with a degree in criminal psychology. Dinah was becoming a cop just like Dad. That's the trajectory of her life. But, of course, a woman detective didn't sit well with some people, namely the other police in Gotham who thought Richard Drake was crazy for raising his daughter for a man's job. One night, Dinah, now a woman, a college graduate, still determined to prove herself qualified to fight crime, meets her father's partner, Larry Lance. Larry comes across as chauvinistic and piggish, and from this first meeting, you'd never guess that Dinah and Larry would end up married. You know, unless you've seen any romantic comedy ever. Richard Drake and Larry Lance go to raid a gambling den that is supposed to have minimal security, but when they kick in the door, they're met by mob enforcers with heavy weapons. Richard and Larry are trapped, and their deaths are all but assured, except Dinah didn't sit on the sidelines like she was told. She sneaks into the gambling den and surprises the gunman, jumping them from behind. A karate chop to one guy's neck and a kick to another's face is all it takes to secure the room and bust the mobsters. Larry Lance is duly impressed by what he sees in Dinah, not just in her fighting spirit and ability, but in her brains and beauty. For reasons unexplained, Dinah begins to fall for Larry, too. One night after a date, Larry drives her home and asks her the same question that Green Arrow asked at the beginning of the story. Why does Dinah want to do a man's job? Dinah says, 
You still don't understand, do you? Because you're a man, you can take any career you want. But because I'm a woman, my choices are supposed to be limited. You make it an either-or situation. Either I'm a female and I do female things, or I'm not because I don't. That's your perspective, Larry, not mine. I don't choose to be limited. I want to be a woman and a cop. One doesn't have to exclude the other. That's what Dinah thinks, but the Gotham Police Academy doesn't see it that way. Her application is rejected, and the disappointment is such that Richard Drake suffers a fatal heart attack. In essence, dying of a broken heart. Dinah uses the money from her father's life insurance policy to open a flower shop, one of the few hobbies she acquired from her mother. But life as a florist is a poor consolation prize, and Dinah won't quit the crime-fighting dream she shared with her father just because the police department rejected her. Taking inspiration from the likes of Batman and Green Lantern, Dinah Drake adopts a flashy costume to battle criminals from slightly outside the law. Dad always called me a little bird, she says, so that's the kind of name I'll take. The Black Canary. From there, we get a rapid-fire recounting of Black Canary's first meeting with Johnny Thunder, as told in Flash Comics 86, which led to her eventually joining the Justice Society of America. She married Larry Lance, who had quit the force to work as a private detective. She briefly retired from crime-fighting, only to, only to return for a climactic adventure when the Justice Society of Earth 2 teamed up with the Justice League of Our Earth. During this epic team-up, Larry Lance died, sacrificing himself to save her from a cosmic being called Aquarius, as told in Justice League of America, issue 74. After the death of her husband, Dinah joined the Justice League, leaving the JSA and her home dimension. Earth 2 was full of too much death and disappointment. She had more opportunity to develop as a woman and as a character on Earth 1. And that's where she would partner with Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow. Which brings us to the present. Ali repeats the question from 12 pages ago. Does she regret her life's direction? Dinah tells him her only regrets are for the people she has loved and lost. And that concludes The Canary is a Bird of Prey, the heretofore untold origin of Black Canary. This story is written by Jerry Conway, who I have come to regard as the greatest underappreciated writer of the Bronze Age. And I could be way, way wrong about him being underappreciated, but I certainly don't hear his name talked about as much as it should be. Conway was the first writer to take over scripting Amazing Spider-Man after Stan Lee left the book. His most famous contribution to the Spider-Man mythos was writing The Death of Gwen Stacy, but he also created The Punisher in the pages of Spider-Man. At DC, he wrote the Justice League of America during the halcyon days of the Satellite Era and created a bunch of characters, including Firestorm, who recently made his live-action debut on the Flash television series. Conway also created the Batman villain Killer Croc and the second Robin, Jason Todd, as well as the Justice League Detroit characters Gypsy, Steel, Vibe, and Vixen. I love Conway's approach to Dinah and the way duty and service to the cause of law and order factor into her life from such an impressionable age. She didn't become a crime fighter because it was fun, and she didn't do it because society said she couldn't. That was incidental. Had society or certain events been different, Dinah still would have put on a uniform and busted criminals, but it would have been the blues of a police officer, not leather and fishnets. We've seen this type of characterization in more recent characters, especially the current Batwoman, who wanted to serve her country as a Marine before being dishonorably discharged under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. In 1978, when Conway wrote the story, however, 
I don't know that this kind of fierce adherence to the concept of service was as prevalent in our heroes. Remember, Conway's most famous creation for DC, Firestorm, was a superhero who fell ass-backwards into his powers. As for the art on this story, it's pretty beautiful. Mike Vosberg drew the G.I. Joe comic for a year or two during the early 80s, and those issues just happen to be my favorites of the series. What I find interesting in this story is how lean and slender he draws Dinah. Most artists depict her as shapely, with some decent curves around her legs and chest. Vosberg draws her much skinnier, almost stick-like in the pages when Dinah is younger. It definitely captures the little bird quality that Richard Drake saw in her. And of course, the story was inked by Terry Austin, who, well, if anyone ever tells you there was a greater comic book inker than Terry Austin, you have my permission to throw your drink in that person's face and storm off. Austin made good pencils look great, and great pencils look legendary. Mike Vosberg wasn't a great artist, but these pages look amazing. All right, I haven't responded to listener feedback since... I don't remember the last time, so I'm just going to read the Fire & Water website comments I received for the last two episodes, which takes us back to episode 12, my limited coverage of Boston Comic Con 2016. The first comment comes from Nathaniel Wayne, host of Council of Geeks and the new podcast Punch Like a Girl, where Nathaniel and his co-host Liz review comics and graphic novels with a female protagonist. Nathaniel and I actually went to Boston Comic Con together. Well, we were supposed to. I should say we actually met up there for a couple hours and then we spread out and did our own things. My first ever Comic Con, he says, I definitely want to be sure that I start getting commissions done at cons in the future, but I opted out this time because I didn't have go-to characters I wanted sketches of, at least not from any artists I could have afforded. Yeah, that is always the trick. If I want to continue getting commissions at future cons, I'm going to have to refine my process, I think. Anyway, Nathaniel then went on to list the swag that he picked up at the show, but one of the coolest things he got, I think, was a print of Dana Barrett, that's Sigourney Weaver's character from Ghostbusters, if you don't know, and if you don't know, shame on you, in her red Zool outfit on the hood of the Ecto-1 cruiser, drawn by Erica Henderson. It's a really great image, and if you know how much Nathaniel loves Ghostbusters, yeah, it's awesome. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast and my co-host on the newly announced Batman Nightcast, coming soon from the Fire and Water Network. Chris said, I've never sprung for too many sketches and I don't really know why. I regret not getting sketches off of artists who have since passed on, like Sheldon Maldoff, for instance. I do have a sweet George Perez Nightwing head sketch from Motor City Con back in 1999, though. Yeah, I really regret not getting something by Perez when I had the chance at my first Boston Comic Con a couple of years ago. I hope I get the chance again someday. Chris goes on, That DiDio story was really nice. DC Rebirth seems like an honest reaction to give fans what they want as best they can, and it sounds like it came from a genuine place. Makes me like it that much more. Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, and soon to be one of my semi-permanent co-hosts on Midnight, the podcasting hour, said... Glad you had such a rewarding time after such a terrible start. Stateside cons sound amazing compared to Aussie ones. Mind you, black comics expert Arthur Adams was at the one I went to a few months back. Very cool. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water Network, Pa Dylan, and the brand new Treasury cast said, Mental note, if I ever attend a comic con with Ryan, do not let him drink anything beforehand. Wait, is that because you don't want me going to the bathroom or because you do want me dehydrated and delirious? 
Rob also said, Your mention of trying to get sketches at shows reminds me of my days of doing the same thing, but for Aquaman. After a while, it became such a logistical nightmare that I just gave up on the whole endeavor. Still, that Zatanna sketch is sweet. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary, and who I met all too briefly at the con and received some terrific swag, said, I love commissions and I have a sort of pseudoscience around it, but like comic collecting, it can be an obsession. He then said, I was bummed I didn't get to the DC panel, but Friday is my heavy lifting day at cons, lining up commissions, so missed out. Yeah, I missed the DC one too. I heard about it secondhand from my friends Paul and Justin. And the last comment from that episode comes from Diablo Frank of the Marvel Superheroes podcast, DC Bloodlines, and the idol head of Diablo. I attended and was a vendor at some cons in the 90s and did San Diego in 2000 on a very generous customer's dime. But I only got back into attending shows because a big one started in Houston in 2010 and caused a couple more to spring up. Aside from that plane ride to Cali, I've never been outside a 30-minute driving window to get to a show and doubt I'd be much inclined. I haven't even been willing to go to other shows in state, though it does take longer than three hours to drive to Dallas or Austin or San Antonio anyway. I'm envious of other folks' more name-artist-centered shows, including Comic Palooza's several years-long date competing Phoenix Con, and especially Bronze Age artist-heavy shows like Heroes Con, this year's same date. But I frankly don't have the time or money to stretch between that many working creators. I've also noticed an increasing tendency for those same childhood favorites to either price themselves out of my getting a piece, or dispense with commissions entirely in favor of signing prints. Sorry bro, hard pass. The past couple years I've cut way back on my pre-planning because of burnout and other life-slash-geek concerns taking precedence. Still, I usually get some new reference pages printed to add to my binder each year, and I still spend half of every show with an artist's portfolio strapped to my sweat-saturated back. And then, responding to my story about awkwardly pussyfooting around Howard Chaikin, Frank said, Chaikin intimidated the hell out of me because of his reputation for intelligence and biting wit, but he turned out to be at least as lovely as every creator I've interviewed, and in fact was especially accommodating and candid. I hurriedly stuck his swanky business card in my wallet, and it stayed there for a year, because seeing it peek out of a credit card slot every time I paid for something made me happy. Okay, we're now moving on to the comments from last episode, wherein Diablo Frank appeared as my special guest to help me review a Wonder Woman and Black Canary team-up from the New Frontier special. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Always good to hear Frank talk Wonder Woman. I was expecting you to be talking about the Dinah-Diana team-up from Wonder Woman 309 that you covered on the blog. In retrospect, I probably should have. I chose the New Frontier story because it was short and I'd never discussed it before. The brevity of that story was a deciding factor, because I didn't have much time if I wanted to get the episode recorded and finished before the anniversary. I honestly didn't expect the episode to be an hour long, but it was a good chat with Frank. For future team-ups, though, yeah, I definitely want to revisit Black Canary's appearances in Wonder Woman issues 308 and 309, and also Frank and Dr. Ange and I have tossed around the idea of some kind of crossover for the Judgment in Infinity story that came in Wonder Woman issues 291 through 293. Not sure when we'll get to that, though. It's perpetually that thing we're going to do someday. Anyway, back to Martin's comment. Frank is so right about the core of Diana, and his recommendations are pretty spot on. I agree that Bill Loeb's earlier issues before Mike Diodato arrives are wonderful. The quote that sums it up for me came in the Mayfly story when the odds look insurmountable. But does Diana flinch? Nope. Her attitude is, today is a good day to die. And then Martin brought up the issue that Frank and I didn't talk about on this episode, the status of Diana's sexual orientation. 
The reason we didn't discuss it is because we already talked about Diana's love life when we recorded a segment for Frank's anniversary episode of his Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast, which you can download now. It's a great episode with tons of great guests besides me. Certainly none as good as me, but you know. Anyway, the news broke that in the current DC Comics universe, Wonder Woman is bisexual. Martin said, It's great to have characters across the spectrum of sexuality, but come on, she's had 75 years of straight. I hate established characters changing for the sake of an agenda. Chris Franklin said, I have mixed feelings on it. Of course it makes sense, but I'm with Martin in not liking change for agenda's sake, or for a creator to say, Here, I did this to this character. Plus, there's the issue of these characters being marketed to children, and I don't think they should ever be oversexed in any orientation. That means Batman and Catwoman shouldn't be humping on a rooftop either, but that's the parent in me coming out. I struggle with wanting the characters treated maturely, but still maintaining their innocent essence. That's why the DC Animated Universe rules. To both of those points, Vera Wilde argued, How can you look at early Wonder Woman comics and say that making her queer, not exclusively lesbian, mind you, is a massive shakeup? She lived on an island of nothing but women. Did you honestly believe that they just tried to drown every sexual urge they had with wine and hot springs for a thousand years? Really? The thing is, I do agree that changing a character's sexual orientation shouldn't be done just because, as was done with Green Lantern Alan Scott. But I don't see how you can argue that's what's happening with Wonder Woman. It's just an acknowledgement of what was the 100% logical conclusion that most of us had already come to a very long time ago. As to the oversexing of characters being a bad idea, I agree in principle, but things get dicey here. The problem is that even if she only ever says some other character is her girlfriend and we never see them even holding hands, there are readers who will label that as oversexed smut because to them the simple acknowledgement of any sexual orientation besides straight is pornographic. So it's hard to come up with a consensus of where the line of crossing over into oversexed actually is. And then Frank shared potentially the shortest comment he's ever left anywhere, ever. Diana's unambiguously non-platonic decades in an on-again, off-again, occasionally married with children relationship with Steve Trevor and other fellas precludes her being convincingly gay, but she's never been entirely straight either. Bi makes the most sense. So here's where I come down. And some of this I talked about with Frank, but I don't think it made it to the cut of his latest Wonder Woman episode, which doesn't mean it won't show up on a later episode. Diana grew up on an island comprised entirely of other women, and presumably would have remained in that situation her entire life if some jet jockey had never crashed nearby. To say that Diana never had romantic or sexual feelings for any other girls while she was growing up, I think is suspending disbelief beyond the breaking point. So I would say Diana for the first part of her life would fall under the category of lesbian. Any loving non-familial relationship she had would be homosexual by definition. But all of that changes the moment she lays eyes on Steve Trevor. And I want to be clear on this because Wonder Woman is one of the most important characters in the history of comics, and she is a feminist icon, a champion of women's liberation and empowerment, and none of what I'm about to say should diminish that. But the motivating factor for Diana, Princess of Paradise Island, to become Wonder Woman is all about Steve Trevor. She fell in love with him at first sight. This was something she had never seen before with her own eyes. Something beyond her dreams. This was man. 
I know this sounds horribly anti-feminist, but it's the truth about the character. Steve Trevor opened Diana's world to new possibilities. Not only did he give her a reason to leave Paradise Island, he gave her avenues to express herself, her love, to grow out of her mother's shadow, to become a woman. This is all stuff that happens because Diana falls for a man. And afterwards, I don't think she has ever felt about a woman the way she felt about Steve. You can argue that Diana is a loving person, that she doesn't discriminate, fine. But the level of emotional intimacy and surrender that she gives to Steve is unparalleled by any other character, certainly any of the women she grew up with on the island. So, if you want to classify her as bisexual because she had lesbian relationships in the past and is now in a straight relationship, okay, I'm fine with that label, but I tend to think of her as, well, this will sound weird, but like 80% heterosexual. Moving on to the comments about what Frank and I did actually discuss last episode, Ange said, I enjoyed the discussion about how you both semi-owned the fan space for Canary and John, respectively. In years past, I had felt that I had a chunk of the Supergirl fan space, but now I am one of many voices. Yeah, that's the inevitable byproduct from your character going from also ran to primetime television, buddy. Like you both, Ange said, I am a Bracelets and Lasso fan much more than a Sword and Shield fan with Diana. It semi-irks me that the warrior aspect has overwhelmed the ambassador side of things. I do wonder if Rucka will rectify that. Of course, we would need DC Editorial to make sure that a consistent vision is being shown. I didn't like it when the Diana in Jeff Johns' Justice League was vastly different than the one in the Azarello Chang book, although I treated the Azarello Diana as an Elseworlds in my headcanon anyways. Chris Franklin said... I'm with Frank, that felt weird, that I miss the DC characters just doing the right thing because they are good people. It's why the change to the Flash's origin with his mother's death really rubs me wrong, and why I'm really sick of it being the focal point of a TV show I otherwise enjoy a great deal. Sure, Barry was already a cop, but now he has this Batman-like motivation he never needed before. Diana obviously came from a life of privilege, but chose to give it up, and in many instances her immortality, just to do what she thought was right, even when her mother and sisters disagreed. That's powerful stuff, and it doesn't need to be monkeyed with. Ever. Just like the Waynes need to die and Krypton needs to blow, Diana needs to win that damn contest despite Mommy forbidding it. And speaking specifically about the story, Vera Wilde came back to say, Sorry guys, but I hate this. I want it to get balled up and pitched to Superboy so he can bat it into the sun. Wonder Woman is a feminist icon. That's not a matter of opinion, it's one of fact, and she's constantly confused and bemused by the world of man. But to have her openly hating men, wanting no more than to kick their asses for ogling women, and tossing aside a woman who's getting ready to jump out of a cake, and for all we know looking forward to doing so, but Wonder Woman never stops to ask her, while calling her a hussy isn't being a feminist. It's being a caricature of the feminazi archetype used to belittle the feminist movement. Feminism is about equality, and one of the first tactics put into place by those who oppose that is to brand feminists as man-haters. And I loathe seeing Wonder Woman and reduced to the walking embodiment of this political cartoon logic. All respect to Darwin Cook, because for the record, I loved New Frontier and Wonder Woman's use in it, but I'm having a hard time thinking of how a 47-year-old white man lampooning a major upswing in women's liberation, including having a major figure of the time taking inspiration from a fictional character a la Marty McFly inventing Johnny B. Good, could have come across as more tone-deaf. Those are all good points, can't argue that. 
Chuck Coletta posted a link to the Daily Rios podcast, which did a special for Wonder Woman's 75th anniversary, and they talk about her appearance in The New Frontier. You can find a link to it on the comment for this episode. You can find a link on Chuck's comment for this episode. And Thomas Favi said, You and Frank are fun to hear. Love to get more from the two of you together. Well, thank you. I love podcasting with Frank. And like I said, we might do some crossovers in the future related to these types of characters, but there also might be something more regular from the two of us starting next year. I can't say any more than that right now. Whew, that is going to do it for this episode. And if I know myself, this is probably going to be the last episode of Power of Fishnets until 2017. I've got two brand new shows taking up my time, plus a new Star Wars movie that I've got to dedicate some brain space to. This show has always been sort of a luxury podcast for me. It's when I have the time. Now, I'm hoping, even with multiple shows coming up to take the place of Secret Origins Podcast, I'm hoping that the recording schedule for those will be a lot more regular, which will give me a little bit more time. Chances are, though, Power of Fishnets will come out once a month, or even once every two months in 2017. If it's once a month, I'm going to try to stick with the alternating format of Zatanna episodes and then Black Canary episodes. If I can only do one episode every two months, though, I'll try and double up so that you get a story about each one of them per episode. What was that thing I said at the beginning of the episode about keeping promises? Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at BlackCanaryFan, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and Eva Aisin Yad. <laughs>